This episode of Inside Acting is brought to you in part by Samovar Tea. To find out more, visit samovarlife.com. And by listeners like you. To find out more and make a donation, please visit insideactingpodcast.com. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Inside Acting. I'm AJ Meyer. And I'm Trevor Alga. And on this podcast, we interview actors, directors, writers, managers, agents, and sometimes a combination of all of the above, and we bring those interviews to an iTunes store near you. And we don't pretend to have all the answers. This is a podcast where we are looking for the answers. Um, so if anybody has any kind of criticisms, comments, uh, anything that you want to share on the podcast about anything you hear here, uh, maybe you want to correct us, maybe you want to tell us how awesome we are for being right, whatever it is, you can write in, call in, tweet in, whatever, uh, and find out all the different ways to do that at our website, InsideActingPodcast.com. And on this episode, we've got part two of our two-part interview with another uh, ultra-hyphenate, as we were calling him, uh, Mr. Rick Zeef, um, and he's got a, his own production company, he directs, he casts, and he also does a lot of voiceover work, which is... Uh, if you listen to the first part of this interview, you know where we put our focus. So stay tuned for part two of that. All right, hey, episode 56. I'm going to write a new song for every episode, and the lyrics are going to be totally made up on the spot, as will be the melody, the harmony, the music. Okay, are you going to start that? Everything. You're going to start that now? Was was that the first attempt? Attempt. (laughs) Nice. What a jerk. (laughs) Trevor's so mean to me. What have you been up to, my friend? What have I been up to? I've been up to rehearsing two shows. Um, Liar. One of which opens at the Fringe. Uh... This week, actually, um, anybody who who follows me on Twitter or Facebook or any of that stuff knows that uh, I've been rehearsing group for like the third or fourth time <laughs> in the past year, and uh, we're going to be putting it up at the group for I think what Adam, the kind of um, writer of it, is calling an encore production. So nothing's really changed in it. There's a tiny you know number of tiny script tweaks, but uh, mm-hmm. for the most part, it's the same play. It's just going to be at the Stella Adler Theater, uh, basically at the very end of the Fringe Festival this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 8 p.m., which is kind of cool. You know, it's a good musical. Tickets are selling well, and um, I yeah, think people you, are excited to see it. If you missed it in the first couple of runs, uh, you should really get out to see it. It's, uh, it is really emotional um, in terms of it's sort of depth. It's different than any other musical that you've probably ever seen. We talked about it on the podcast yeah. before, but yeah, it's not a musical <clears throat> musical. There's no jazz hands. It's just uh cheery, happy, light, fluffy things. <laughs> it's funny. It is. It really is. Fun. Oh man, we shouldn't have said all that. Stuff. I know. Like, I'm not going to go see that. Yeah. It's, it's good though. Uh, so it's exciting. But it's at the fringe, which we should talk about the, the idea of the fringe and sort of, I got, a, I got a, a, a it was, a, we, we got a tweet or an email or something from Godali. Uh, at one point uh, saying, you know, we should talk about The Fringe because, um, you know, it's like a bunch of artists producing their own work. Yeah, I think he asked us if we were going to be covering it. And uh, The Fringe is a pretty big thing to cover. It's not like a one-day event. It's right. like two weeks of hundreds of plays. I don't know if there's much coverage we could 
as two people do. Yeah. Well, other than, I mean, we can talk about it right now yeah. if you want to yeah. kind of, you want to kind of <clears throat> give people a sort of one yeah, sentence or the, two sentence explanation of the, what it is. The way I've been describing it to friends and family on the East Coast who aren't familiar with mm-hmm. a fringe festival is it's like a film festival for plays, basically. And they're mm-hmm. confined to like a one square mile radius of Hollywood. And so you get like a little program um, of all the different plays that are going on from like, I guess, I don't know, they start around like lunchtime every day and then go through like midnight mm-hmm. uh, at all these different various theaters. And you can kind of just buy really affordable tickets and go around and see these plays and it's all word of mouth it's a great community so it's it's kind of a fun culture thing you know yeah. i think the fringe actually originated in scotland wasn't it yeah edinburgh, edinburgh was the very first i think that was the first one it's certainly festival. the biggest now yeah um the, the 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 population of edinburgh doubles overnight it goes from being half a million to a million people yeah. overnight yeah. uh for the month of august because of the because of the fringe now <clears throat> that's certainly the biggest and then i think the second biggest if i'm remembering correctly is like toronto or something one of the like edmonton one of the cities in in canada um and then new york and then i, I don't hmm. know we're like dead last <laughs> they're very small <laughs> i know uh, in la yeah. which is a, a shame because it should be um you know we have a lot of theater here so yeah and then you know there's a lot of good theater when i first came out to la <clears throat> i was from the you know i'm from the east coast where there's some really fantastic theater and i yeah. came out here thinking like la is not a theater town most of the theater out here is not that good and to a degree that's true there's a lot of like grab ass theater that people just use as a showcase or they use because they just want to be seen or make connections or they're bored or whatever um but then there's also a lot of really good theater um the tough part is separating the wheat from the chaff um, that's true so how do you do that i i guess you just have to kind of go with word of mouth yeah um because you know even even bad theater gets decent reviews sometimes <laughs> very true and, <laughs> so, and good theater gets panned yeah that's true um there's a lot we should continue this conversation um especially since i didn't really i had one commercial audition this week there's my catch-up uh, <laughs> uh there's a lot going on in la theater right now there's the fringe festival there's the radar la yeah festival going on and there's also the tcg conference happening um sort of all in the same couple of weeks so for people who don't know what are radar and tcg so radar is another uh theater festival that i believe is started by the people over at red cat which is a theater um sort of underneath the music center so if you've ever been to downtown los angeles or seen pictures of the gorgeous disney music concert hall the red cat theater is sort of underneath that complex basically once again another festival of plays that are happening all over la so it's not contained as you put it to a, a square mile in, in in hollywood there's a bunch of different theaters participating in it from small theaters to big theaters mm-hmm. and everything in between and the tcg conference which i'm going to talk about again during my pick of the week <clears throat> is uh, a it stands for theater communications group and it's a theater conference that happens every year in uh, one location so people from all over the world really from all, all, all over the world of theater come together in one place to meet and discuss sort of the you know world of theater and what's what's happening um in the world of theater this year it's being held in los angeles now i want to get your take on this because i've i've been thinking about this a lot and you're i think you're a little more entrenched in the theater world than i am uh, on a larger scale at least and um it seems to me that like you and I and a lot of people in our kind of immediate group of friends are very kind of close, very kind of uh, in with a close knit group of theater people. And so to 
our kind of reality is that theater is a huge part of our lives. But I think on a larger scale, in Los Angeles, theater is just kind of cute. You know what I mean? Like, people just kind of look at it as like, oh, that's nice, that's cute. But, like, the real actors go off to film and television. Not to say that, like, they stick there permanently. Some actors come back and do theater every once in a while. But, like, the, the, the sense that I get is that theater, people who do a lot of theater kind of aren't... I, I guess I don't know quite how, I, how I'm trying to put it, but... Do you kind of know what I'm going at, getting at here? I think it's something that we've talked about on the podcast before, actually. Just well, I'm like sure we how, have. You know, especially in this town, how people place more of the focus on film and television. I, I would definitely say that if you asked, you know, one out of every hundred uh, Angelinos this week about t- they go TCG what? Like, they probably have no idea that in the heart of the city, in the, in the heart of Los Angeles, you know, in the, in the Biltmore Hotel, that there's this huge conference going on that is very important to a large group of, you know, theater professionals yeah. across the country and across, across the globe. That's for sure. <clears throat> um, and then your other point about it being sort of cutesy, although that does get under my skin, uh, is, yeah. you know, it's, it's true. I mean, and that... It's, it varies from person to person because, like, I was at my Thrival job today and I was talking to a couple of my coworkers and they asked me, like, every once in a while I'll get the question, so how's acting going? Which I kind of like. I'm like, wow, thank you for respecting my, you know, career outside of here enough to ask me how it's going. And I started telling them about it and because I'm so passionate about it, I can kind of, like, infect other people with that. And so they were getting into it like, yeah, man, it sounds like it's going great. Good job. I was telling about the meeting with, you know, Stone Manners and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> they were like, it sounds awesome. And then I was like, I was like, yeah. I was like, in fact, you know what? I was like, I'm doing a show at the end of the summer. I was like, you guys should check this out. We're raising money to make it a better production. Check this. And I took them to the Kickstarter page. And I was like, bookmark that. Send it to yourself. Click on it later. All you got to do is donate a dollar or, or more if you want to. Like, if you donate this much, you get free tickets to opening night. Like, just being, like, super passionate about it. And they were like, yeah, I'm totally going to check this out. And they emailed it to, them, to themselves. And they're going to go check it out later, whatever. Um... And then, you know, I could talk to someone else and, and they might be like, oh, you're in a play? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> how precious. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, it varies. It's on an individual basis. Well, how, how relevant do you think theater is in 2011? I'm curious. Oh, my God. As, as, a, as an art. It's like an art, a, a cultural art question. Form. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just, I can't help but notice that, you know, one of our, one of our thrival jobs, we work at the Kirk Douglas Theater. And like easily like 80% of the people that come in there are older I mean, we're talking like 50, 55 years old and above. And I think that that's because as you get a little older, you start to really appreciate the arts. That's a, a thing that people say happens mm-hmm. to you as you age. But like, You also tend to become more affluent. Yeah. But I mean, that's those people have never been like the driving force behind the largest economies. You know? It's, it, so it, it seems like it's not relevant on, a, on an economic and kind of pop cultural level. Is it pretty terrifying thing to to think about um you know the sort of i mean and it's been talked about for years and years and years and years about the sort of death of theater i mean we went to oh man i hope i don't get in trouble for saying this we went to a a staff meeting with the entire staff of the center theater group the largest most profitable theater well it's a non-profit but you know what i mean uh you know largest revenue grossing theater um in Los Angeles, and the artistic director uh, 
Michael Ritchie got up and started talking about, you know, subscription services. And how they're on the way out. And how they're on their way out because the numbers just constantly drop through year to year, but single ticket sales are doing okay. You know, that revenue model might be going away the same way that residuals are going away. It's just, you know, sort of an evolution of that, you know, the way that that art generates revenue. I think that humans are going to always, always, always need to tell and hear stories, Mm -hmm. though. And that's the thing that always sort of peps me up and makes me be like, okay, calm down. It's not theater Armageddon quite yet. It's going to be okay. Right. But I mean, with with film, television, web, doesn't it seem like that's a lot easier? I mean, that's a lot easier to consume, let's be honest. And and sometimes, and usually you know it's going to be of a certain quality. Whereas sometimes with theater, it's it's up in the air. You've got to go out. No, there's a lot leave of, your house. Dude, there's a lot of crappy movies out there. There's a lot well, of yeah. I mean, what I'm saying, I guess, is, on, that, is that you Smurfs, can watch what I'm saying. Legally Blonde, dude, dude. Those are awesome movies. Okay, <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm saying is like you can usually watch a trailer. You can read reviews that are kind of like globally accessible from like a lot of different kind of like magazines and things that are found easily on the internet. But when you go see a play, it may not be as well publicized. There's usually not a trailer. Um, or any kind of like video content to kind of tease you what it's about. It costs twice as much as it does to go see a movie. And you've got to leave your house. You can't just fire up Hulu and, and watch it, you know? You know what I mean? I mean, much more easy to consume that stuff. So theater, it, it, this has been bugging me. This is why I wanted to talk about it, because it's kind of causing this this war inside me. It's like, oh, man, that sucks, because I think theater's awesome. But I get it when people, when my friends are like, I don't know if I can come see your play, man. I get why they say that. And it hurts, but I get it. You know? I have friends that have never seen any of my work. And it's kind of like, well, that thanks, but <laughs> that sucks. But, I mean, I kind of understand where you're coming from. I honestly don't know what to say. I, I, I understand where you're coming. I understand your point. I understand where you're coming from. But it just, like, I think it maybe makes me too sad to think about. <laughs> well, you know, this is a good segue into one of our questions. Because we got a question from a listener named Jess who wanted to know, can I make money as a survival job doing theater here in LA by doing one of these actor access uh, theater breakdowns that I see every day? And she wants to know um, what is and how much is the 99-seat contract or other contracts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I I wrote a response to her, but I have to admit I'm not as well-versed in in the contracts and union stuff of theater as you are. So I didn't know if you had something you wanted to respond to right off the bat. Well, just in terms of practical nuts and bolts it's i mean 99 seat contract is like nine dollars a show nine dollars a performance nothing for rehearsal you don't get a stipend you don't get anything like that so my first my immediate response is you don't get paid period um you know you can't really count the nine dollars you get a performance as, as as payment um that does go up over time if the show runs for a long time um, but you know, it pretty much tops out at like $16 a performance. And then after that, it goes to, um, <clears throat> the actors getting a percentage of the box office. Mm-hmm. So that's just that. Those are just some of the, the nuts and bolts. Can you make a living off of theater in Los Angeles? Absolutely. It is hard. It's hard. I've only been involved in, I want to say two or three shows since graduating that, paid you know sort of lord d um money and were it paid enough essentially that i was able to sustain myself with just that just that show 
being able to, to go from show to show that pays enough to actually, you know, pay your bills is like nigh impossible. Yeah. What's um, Lord D for people who don't know? So, uh, Lord stands for, uh, the league of regional theaters. I think, I think it's league. And basically it's a contract that the theaters have with the, um, with actors equity, um, and you basically it determines how much uh, an actor gets paid based on things like the production value, how much money is going into the play, and really most importantly the size of the theater that it's in. Which is why they call a ninety-nine seat contract a ninety-nine seat contract because it's a theater that's ninety-nine seats or less. Um, so Lort D is one of the best production contracts that you can get for a sort of resident theater if it's not a tour. Right now, it's somewhere in the ballpark of like $900 a week, maybe less. Per performer? That. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's a, like I said, it's an, it's enough to live on, you know, right. even in Los Angeles, believe it or not. <laughs> but those gigs are pretty hard to find. They're pretty exactly. far and few between. Exactly. I mean, 99-seat theater contracts are a dime a dozen, but... Exactly. And there's not even a contract. I've never really signed anything. For a lot of the 99th theater I've done, <laughs> I mean, you should, you should. I mean, that's a that's a problem, right? Um, you might not be, yeah, you might not be under under contract, especially if you're not getting paid at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. You know, that yeah. that may be just you, like in a room, you know, <laughs> talking to people. But right. uh, if you are a member of the union, uh, if you're a member of, of of Actors Equity, you're you're not supposed to do anything. Without, a, without a contract. Right. So if it's a 99C, you need to have a 99C contract. Right. Cool. So the, the A, B, C, D thing of Lord, does that, does that uh, correspond to the size of the theater? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And Lord A, I think, is the best. Or, like, I mean, the that, most money, the biggest. That'd be like the Amundsen type yeah, deal. Like yeah, yeah, Like 2,500 seats. Yeah. And then you, you know, then it gets up into like the, you know, Twelve, thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars a week range, I believe. Nice. And then there's production contracts, and then there's touring contracts. There's there's so many. It's like difficult to keep track of. Which is why we talked about this at some point. I think a listener said we should have a, a whole episode dedicated to like this kind of nuts and yeah. bolts like contracts thing. We will at some point. And a lot of the stuff that I'm throwing out right now is like I'm just pulling it out of my butt, and people are going to call me on it left and right, which is fine. It's great. It's a learning experience for for all of us. But um, you know. It's almost not worth keeping. It's almost not worth worrying about as 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 an actor. Like I, I hate saying that. And I don't. Want, it's not. I'm not saying that because I'm saying like we should all remain blissfully ignorant. I'm saying it because I think people need to put their focus in other areas. Mm-hmm. Like don't worry about like how much you're going to make until you're actually like you've booked the job. Right. You know. Worry right. about worry about booking the job. Don't worry about like how much money you're going right. to be making if you book the job. And speaking of uh, kind of unions and contracts, that kind of thing, um, we did have a listener write in uh, about last week's episode when AJ, you mentioned that uh, you thought that if you were or you, now that you thought you you know that if you are oh, a, yeah, that's a, good a, point. One, a member of one of the unions, you could buy in to one of the other unions, the sister unions, if you had... Uh, yeah, it was, you, had, had, you have to have all your dues paid, and you have uh-huh. to be in good standing, and you have to be with them um, for over a year. Right. And, and then, all of that is actually true. Right. But the one thing that I left out that... Uh, was it Jen? It was Jen, yeah. Levin. Jen Levin that wrote in. Um, said that uh, you you also have to have had a principal contract, a principal role in the union that you were actually a part of. And the, the only reason I didn't mention it, I mean, I didn't know that, and but the only reason I didn't know it and therefore didn't mention it is because um, that's what I did. 
<laughs> oh, cool. So I didn't realize that that was a stipulation. Right. Because when I became part of equity, I did so because I signed a principal contract. Um, cool. Thanks. That was a good reminder. Uh, I wanted to talk about that. Cool. Well, we hope that um, that, that answers your question a little bit, Jess. Um, my response to her, I wrote her an email back real fast and basically said that I think that it's kind of a myth that actors make their living solely from, from one source of income. And this we have talked about uh, several times. And I linked her to uh, our Thrival Job episode with Ben Whitehair. And I found, you know, like the, not only from the people that we're talking to on this podcast, but also other people in the industry and big players like, you know, Harrison Ford, people like that, Robert De Niro, they've most of the time got several sources of income, several businesses. They own restaurants and bars and clothing lines and production companies, and they do several different things other than just act. Um, so I think it's kind of a myth that when you get to LA and you start working as an actor, that that is going to be your sole job. You know what I mean? That I'm that you're just an actor for hire. I don't yeah. think that's. I don't think. I think that's the exception rather than the rule. I think actors for hire are the are, are very rare thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most of the time, I mean, you just look up any actor that's kind of like been working consistently for the past ten years, and you'll nine times out of ten find that they have a production company. Yeah, where they're actually producing their own stuff, or, some, or they teach classes, or yeah, or they do um, headshot or something like that. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we jump into this interview, we also wanted to quickly touch on an email that we got from longtime listener Matt Wilder. He wrote in with uh, an experience that he had. I guess uh, if you guys remember, Matt was uh, Matt's a host, an actor and a host, and he got a gig with Nickelodeon on this cruise ship. And then after like three weeks, Matt Matt wrote in and told us this and said we could share it on the podcast. After three weeks, they were like, uh, you're not what we're looking for, and they let him go. And he was kind of, understandably, you know, devastated by that. Um, so he kind of bounced back, and he was at this uh, karaoke bar a couple weeks ago. They were looking for, for hosts for this karaoke night. Um, so he went, he met with the owner, and then the owner, on the spot, gave Matt the mic and kind of pushed him up on stage and said, well, let's see what you got. And Matt was like, uh, b- uh, b- okay. And uh, he just kind of went up there and he said he killed it. He said it was just this live moment where he just kind of... I, a couple episodes ago, I talked about learning plateaus. How you have a little breakthrough and then you plateau for a while and it feels like you're making no progress at all. And then you have another breakthrough. And I feel like I had mm-hmm. one of those with like this string of theater I was doing. It was about, I guess it was like five or six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like I hit this, this, this busted through this kind of plateau and got to a new level with my work. And Matt basically said the same thing happened to him. He just kind of let things work through him and just kind of responded intuitively moment to moment. And he said, um, the audience was with him. He was just kind of playing creatively being honest and, uh, he loved it. And, um, I think his email makes it sound like he got the job. I don't know if he did or not, but, um, it's Matt, you have to tell us, Yeah, you you got to tell us, but it's such a cool email, um, to hear about people just kind of, breaking through to that place where like, wow, you know, this is so cliche, but it's all about the truth of the moment, you know? <laughs> like, I, I hate saying that. I feel like a, a convert of like some method or something, but, um, well, I mean, it's you, so true. You, you could also just quote him from it, from his email. I am the vessel for which creativity flows through for the audience. I like, love that. I know it sounds cheesy, but damn, that's good stuff right yeah. there. That's really good stuff. Yeah, yeah. And there's a great TED Talk. I know we've talked about this before, too. A great TED Talk from Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote the book Eat, Pray, Love. Um, and she talks about kind of the the ancient kind of classical Greece view of creativity and how nobody in ancient Greece thought anything that they created 
was their creation. They all viewed it as this kind of muse, which was a part of some higher creative spirit that chose to work through them at that moment. And so there was no such thing as, I guess, like a dancer or actor or writer high. They, nobody kind of got off in their own work. They all just felt blessed to have been touched by this creative spirit that worked through them. We talked about this with Adam in his interview. Thank I don't you. Know. This is a huge thing to talk about. But, <laughs> but yeah, thanks, Matt, for writing in. That's an awesome thing to hear. And let us know if you got the job. So let's uh, jump into part two of our interview with Rick Zeef. Rick is an ultra hyphenate. Does a lot of different things, but as you guys know, he is uh, he, he does a lot of voiceover, and that's really what we choose to focus on in this interview. So enjoy it, and we'll see you on the other side. Because you know, I, I I could continue asking you questions about the voiceover industry for another hour, but I want to talk about. I mean, you're not just doing voiceover; you're also a, a successful actor. Um, you've worked a lot in television, done some feature films. Um, we'll post Rick's IMDb on our website, so you guys can go check that out. But also um, uh, a director, and you started your own. Your, and you're a, a director, a casting director, and you started your own production company is that what yellowbird is yeah tell tell us about yellowbird i guess would be the uh, (laughs) yellowbird is an entity that is a bit of a catch-all it is a it does casting it does uh production mostly in audio where i will produce um some video game audio elements uh industrials commercials anything needs audio i will either just cast sometimes i'll just direct sometimes i'll do both and sometimes i'll get involved with producing the whole thing um, I've been lucky to do a lot of voice directing. Voice directing is a curious sort of heading because it doesn't always exist. When when you make a commercial, when I'm hired as an actor to do a commercial, it seems like the writer slash producer is the person directing me. Now, they're not necessarily calling themselves a director. They're directing the session. And um, it's been very interesting sometimes being hired to do it, and, and they don't have necessarily the skills to communicate what they want. They wrote it, they understand it in their head, but getting it from their brain to your ears is sometimes an arduous journey. Um, of course, there are directors for things like animation and, and other kinds of venues. I've been lucky to uh, direct um, a good amount of animation and video games, which is a lot of fun. That's under Yellowbird as well. I've done a lot of anime directing, uh, both for Cartoon Network and also a feature that came out a couple years back. Um, so Yellowbird, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, absolutely by design, uh, jack of all trades, master of absolutely nothing. Um, I actually think I, I don't even know if I've achieved jack status. I'm probably like, I'm like the nine of diamonds of all things, master of nothing. I do a lot. I, I do, you know, pop up on, on TV now and then. I just just wrapped a Weeds episode, and um, I, I love it. I'm an actor at heart, you know, and and the branching out um, of these other things kind of mushroomed by themselves in a weird way. I, I was a theater director as well back in New York, and I've always loved directing and, and getting involved with that. Um, the castings crept in because I'd, I'd be in projects, and they would say, hey, do you know, can you help us find this one role? And I'd find that role, then I'd help find more roles. And it kind of it, it kind of took shape before I decided to hang a shingle and say, yeah, I guess I'm a casting director. I've cast all these projects. You know, I was fortunate enough to be tapped to cast a little animated Project that went on to win an Oscar, and that kind of made me want to hang a shingle. I don't know if you've heard of, uh, you can all look this up, uh, The Chub Chubs. Look that one up. It was a, a short animated 
vignette that. Uh, what year did that win? I'm, I want to say 2001. Okay, and I, it was I feel like I remember Sony it. Imageworks. These cute little creatures that become something else. Uh, and I was tapped to to cast it, and ended up playing several of the roles in it myself. Uh, really cute. And then there was talk of a feature after that that never happened. But once once I cast that, and I realized that. Um, I was finding the right actor, the right voice for the right project. I could call myself a casting director, and it's been it's been fun. I love calling actors my fellow brethren and saying, "You got the gig." I mean, that's that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's just, the Santa Claus part. Is I, fun. Yeah. I was just thinking of because we've had many multi hyphenates on the show and people who are like self produced and and Trev and I have talked about like you know if you want to be consistently working, you know it's great to to be a uh, a self producer because then it's just like you produce something and you cast yourself in it, but you've got it all wrapped up, man, from front to finish. Like you, you're a one man band, so I, I don't think we've ever had a casting director on the show who could potentially cast themselves <laughs> in something. Um, don't blow my cover. Uh, <laughs> I, I think if you've had casting people on here, y- you all have dispelled the myth that casting directors cast. In other words, they're gatekeepers and they're clearinghouses. The decision makers. You know, dole out the gigs. So I don't want people out there to go, "Hey, he's got it. He he, he became a casting director, so he could cast himself." Um, I have been lucky enough to to be cast in projects that I am also casting, but I've had to get in line and and put my auditions right up against um, other people. Um, the first, the second casting job I was hired to do was for corporate narration, and you know the old story: what if you have a party and nobody shows up? And I, it was a very low budget, not a big thing. And um, <laughs> do we have time for an anecdote? anecdote? Oh, uh, yeah. So, so uh, they they asked me to cast this thing, and I held auditions. I rented a studio. I didn't really quite know what I was doing. I kind of did. And I and like less than half of the actors who said they were showing up showed up, and I was really light on on actors. And I really wasn't going to audition myself. And um, but I was so desperate. Uh, to have more sort of auditions to submit, um, I decided to lay something down and, and slate as a different person, thinking, you know, what are the odds I get the job? I think you know where this is going. <laughs> so I what are the I slated as um, sort of a family joke. Instead of Rick Zeef, I slated um, uh, it was Danny Kay. No, not Danny Kay. It was Marlon Kay. Here's why. Back in the day, my folks said, you know, you're as funny as a Danny Kay, but you are you got the acting chops of a Marlon Brando. Why don't you call yourself Marlon Kay? And I went, no. <laughs> Just like that. Uh, they thought, I don't know why. You know, Rick Zeef, I'm good with Rick Zeef. But so I slated as Marlon Kay, and I did this narration. I thought, I'll never get this. And this was a, a slightly different situation where I had to bring the materials, the audition materials, to the producer, sit in a conference room, and listen to auditions with them rather than submit it digitally. <laughs> so there I am listening to person after person critiquing them, and, hey, can we get this guy, and he's expensive, and is he good, and blah, blah. And mine was last, and after my audition, there was this pause, and they all nodded, and one guy said, this guy's voice is like butter. Can we get this guy? Mar- is this Marlon K. expensive? Can we get him? Is he in L.A.? Is he local? I'm like, um, I, thi- I think he's, you know, the whole <laughs> I, mean, I think we can get him. He's, 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 he's expensive. He's worth it. He's, I'm like, and, and I didn't know, do I blow my cover now? Do I pull the one guy who hired me aside? And um, it, it, they did. They hired me, and I did a whole bunch of narration for this company. But, um, if you're, here's a lesson. If you're called for an audition, to an audition, please show up so the casting director doesn't have to cast themselves. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. Well, yeah, that, that oppor- <laughs> an opportunity for somebody, you know, uh, could have 
came and went, but we're glad you got it. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, it is surprising. People sometimes don't show up to auditions, and I don't, I don't know what they have that's more important. I, I'm staggered by that. When I've got a good gig, a fun video game, an online, I do a lot of alternate reality games online, which is another weird realm. Um, and sometimes people just don't show up and don't call, which is not just dumb but unprofessional because I won't call them in again. But I'm amazed. We could talk about business etiquette, of course, all day. But when you have an audition, either show up or call. But I'm amazed at how many people don't. So there's a lesson. I'm, I'm just amazed. Wow. As long in the tooth as I am in this game, you know, I could be stuck on the side of the road you know, with four flat tires, and I will sprint to an audition, even, even at this stage of my career. There's just no reason not to get there. So... Uh, you know, I learned the hard way that sometimes, you know, just like college admissions, they let in more people than there's room for. You know, casting people fall behind schedule because they do that too. We got to call in more people than we really have time for because some of you just don't show up. So it's like overbooking a flight, basically. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. To, wow. That's. And so, that's, uh, except I can't offer a, a free gig, you know. <laughs> well, we'll be overbooked. Here's a free gig for the next <laughs> right. one. Uh, right. So I know you've all heard that lesson, you know, to be professional and stuff. But it's, it's amazing how many people don't seem to wow. need to adhere to that. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Well, we are quickly running out of time. So we want to get to uh, uh, a, f- a couple of things. Yeah. First of all, we have these two questions that we always ask every single one of our guests. Okay. And then we also want to, uh, you know, find out uh, how our listeners can learn more about you and, and possibly get in, t- in touch with you if they have questions about voiceover or what have you. Sure. So the first question is, do you feel as though you chose this path, this career, this life, or do you feel like it chose you? Wow. There's a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> I really do feel like it shows me and that sounds you know when you verbalize it it sounds very self-serving like it like came from on high you know the heavens chose you you were the chosen one um i grew up in a family that was you know that uh embraced education enormously but still left the window open for a lot of creative exploration. My mom is a painter, a very successful artist in Boston. And um, so I kind of had the yin and the yang. I actually went to college for mathematics. Um, And I was a a teacher at the calculus level for a while, which may surprise many. Um, And when I went into acting as a full-time career, it, it it came with a modicum of guilt, like I should be doing something that's a little better for the universe. I should have been a surgeon or a, or a shrink. We need some of those or a politician. Something with these smarts that I've cultivated low these many years. And then I thought, no, no. No, I can use my creativity to do some good with the world. Um, for instance, one of the reasons I'm late today is I, I volunteer a lot of time. I, I've helped... Um, create a program that teaches voiceover classes for free as an after-school program to middle school kids. I'm real proud of it. That's awesome. And um, I've used a lot of um, voiceover work um, in inner-city schools for pre-K through third graders using improvisational games and kinesthetic exercises with acting to help some, you know, because kids learn differently. Some are visual, some are oral, some are kinesthetic. And so I'm very into education. And how we can use improvisation and acting 
as part of our intellectual growth. Um, and the thing with the teenagers, the young uh, middle school kids, you know, I was one of those kids that didn't necessarily make it to the first draft of the basketball team, let's just say, winkety-winkety. Uh, and there weren't a lot of outlets for that. In, in the shrinking economy in California, there's less and less for kids to do after school. So this is an after-school program we've helped develop to, to do that. Um, I'm getting on this tangent because I feel like this craft that I have and this passion I have for teaching um, go it will make the world a better place. I'm helping kids. Not that I want these kids to go into voiceover specifically, but I want them to nurture their creative selves to do whatever they want, whether they are just more confident or poised in public speaking or in interviewing for the job. Whatever they do, creative expression is essential from a young age, and it should stay part of people's soul forever and, and be woven into their businesses. You know, It's very interesting that um, the average adult it is said, draws with the aptitude of a fifth grader. Mm. And it is exactly in that year that we seem to not nurture creative growth. Isn't that neat? That is, yeah. that is interesting. So we want to keep it going. So I feel like it shows me, I feel like I've made the right choices. I have a heck of a lot of fun. Um, and um, I love what I do. So I, I, I think that the it shows me thing is, uh, it just feels right and yeah. um, it has afforded me a lifestyle that um, I'm very happy with I get to spend a lot of time with my family and make my own hours and I'm I'm very happy that's awesome and yeah. you still work your butt off which is very inspiring not afraid of work but you know the, the big joke when I was a New York stage actor was when you're in a play why do they call it work you know when you're going to play when people say I'm right. going to work uh, I don't I don't you know when I'm gigging when I'm at when I'm on either side of the glass if I'm the guy in the booth or outside the booth or just in my office casting you know I, I lose track of time so much I, I love I love it all that I, I just I just can't think of it like any kind of work connotes drudgery to me you know <laughs> digging ditches is work you know yeah. uh you know making wacky voices is not work you know I, <laughs> it's, awesome. it's not work at all yeah, to me i love yeah. that um, yeah. yeah uh the second question is if you could distill in, in in all the experiences you've had whether it's voiceover directing casting uh producing in all the experiences that you've had um on stage or in front of the glass behind the glass if you could distill it down all to one nugget of advice for anyone in this industry, whether they're just starting out or maybe they've been around for a while, what is sort of your, you know, if you had to bring one piece of advice to a desert island with you, what, you know, what would that piece of advice be? Boy, this is going to sound pretty fortune cookie time. Um, there's a quote I use a lot that I've, I keep learning from. If you argue for your limitations, they're yours. And by that, I would always mean I'd be submitted for an audition, and they would call me and say, how's your French accent? I'd say, eh. And I would do that for years. How's your Slavic accent? How's your, can you do this? And then at some point, I said, wait, if I say I can't do it, then I certainly can't do it. And then I started taking these audition opportunities, not just for accents. Sorry to all you French-speaking people. I'll never take a job away from you. But, you know, if people say, you know, can you do this, just, just – Figure it out. Go take a lesson overnight. I remember uh, once I was I used to do a lot of on-camera commercials back in New York, and there was a call for um, people who were magicians, 
And it was right around that turning point where I said, I'm a magician. You know, I, I'll just say yes. I don't want to say yes, I am a, you know, Olympic uh, level, uh, you know, javelin thrower. You know, you, you got to know what you really can't do. But I thought, well, I'm, I'm good with my hands. I, I can, and I hired like this world-class magician. We stayed up all night. He taught me all these tricks. And what the commercial ended up being was a green screen thingy where you saw two hands floating in space, peeling clear plastic wrap out of the box and with a flourish removing it and that was the whole thing was just i'm doing it you can't see this folks but the two guys here can <laughs> just this flourish and i kind of imagine this flow chart of phone call saying we need guys with good hands we need guys with good hands that are like magicians we need magicians get me <laughs> magicians and, and it really was just me going in the room going like this i didn't get the gig and i don't care but i realized every job i'm saying no to or audition i'm saying no to i'm definitely not going to get Mm. You know, and um, another Is that Michael uh, Jordan quote: "You miss every <laughs> shot you don't take." Yeah, yeah. Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky. Oh, yeah. Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. yeah. And, and the other one, and uh, I'm rife with anecdotes today. Forgive me. Um, I got a, a call from my agent saying, uh, "Can you do a Brussels Griffin?" And I said, "Yes, I can do a Brussels Griffin because I don't argue for my limitations anymore." I didn't say that part to her out loud. <laughs> and I hung up the phone. And I called everybody. I said, "Who's Brussels Griffin?" I got to find out who this guy is. I got to rent a couple movies, and I got to do a sound alike. I'll get his rhythm, his timber, whatever. And by tomorrow, I'll go to this audition, and I can sound like Brussels Griffin. I thought that's reasonable. Nobody knew who he was. This is a little pre-Google days, <laughs> you know. So I call my agent the next morning. And I say, I, I kind of feel like, you know, adult here. I don't know who Brussels Griffin is. She said, what, what do you mean? Brussels Griffin is a kind of dog. It's a kind of a dog. It's a Brussels Griffin dog. You have like 15 minutes to get to this audition, get to Sony Studios and get to this place. So it was an audition to imitate a dog. So I didn't have time to argue for that limitation because you know, I'm an allergic person. I don't have dogs. Uh, and I get to this audition and I'm in a room filled with the dog people. I mean, people with their little headphones are <laughs> doing dog noises. I'm, oh my God, I'm in actual hell. I'm in, <laughs> I'm in a room filled with people doing dogs. And the audition was to go into a screening room, watch about seven minutes of this film, and then watch it a second time, replacing the dog's noises. Wow. And I thought, well, that's, you, your listeners probably know, is called looping or ADR work. That I know. I've done a lot of it in the film work I've done. So I'm very comfortable doing looping and lip syncing, or in this case, you know, snout syncing. Um, the dog noises, I don't know. I thought I could pant and yelp like any other. And I, I get the gig. I got the gig. It was a movie called As Good As It Gets. Uh, and in that movie, Greg Kinnear had this little dog, Verdell, and I was the voice of Verdell. And... Uh, make residuals to this day on it and I didn't argue for my limitations because I didn't know who the hell Brussels Griffin was. So Brussels, thank you. Unbelievable. <laughs> that is an epic story. I thank love you it. There's so my epic story. So anyway, uh, there's great. my piece of advice is, yeah, obviously to the extreme degree, if there's something you just don't do, if someone says, do you do you know, trick horse riding, you know, you're not going to figure that out by tomorrow's audition. But by and large, you know, go for it. You know, don't argue for your limitations. Try it. Um, and, and hopefully you'll say, well, I'm going to be in a room full of people that probably are going, hmm, my this is only fair as well. And you might get the gig. You just might get the gig. Um, That's awesome. So there you go. So I want to so, encourage people to, you know, to try for the people who are in that marketing phase, go for it. The people who 
haven't made their demos yet or possibly haven't trained in voiceovers yet. I mean, training is essential. Um, you know, acting is acting is acting. Um, people say, you know, is is voice acting a, a whole different set of skills than, say, acting for stage or acting for TV or film. Um, it's not a different skill set. There's enormous overlap, but there are things you would adjust technically for an invisible world. Mm-hmm. We rely on so many things in on-camera work and in life, uh, you know, any nonverbal communications, whether it's hands on hip or a raised eyebrow or crossed arms speak volumes. Well, we can't hear a shoulder shrug in, in voiceover land. So there are certain things we want to adjust for acting in this, in this world, in an invisible world. The main thing is to embrace the invisibility and say, wow, I can play so many things I could never get cast as on camera. People who feel limited by their ethnicity, by their height, by their physicality, by uh, a handicap that's visibly obvious that doesn't sound like anything. Um, It's enormously freeing to be able to play all that you can sound like. Hmm. It's huge. And I do think people need to explore that, and that would be training. So here's a plug for my class. Um, I'm very proud to be what I think is one of the one of the bigger coaches here in LA. Rick Zeef's unbelievably fun voiceover class. Um, <laughs> it's it's a wild ride to explore what can my voice be, and I have people come to me with little or no acting experience, and people with tons of acting experience in film and TV. And interestingly, a lot of the actors who have worked for many years have a harder time sort of shirking that I am what I look like thing. Because they're so used to being typecast or pigeonholed mm-hmm. based on their look. Mm-hmm. And the people say, no, I can be 20 years older. I can sound 15 years younger. I can sound stupor smarter. I can do armadillos and robots and whatever I can sound like I can sell. So um, if you want training, there are obviously a lot of good training you know, here in L.A., a lot of good teachers. Uh, I like to include myself as, as one of many. So where, where can people find out more about that if they wanted to? If they want to contact me, they can do so at uh, yellowbirdcasting, all one word, no punctuation, yellowbirdcasting at yahoo.com. Um, and they can look at the site yellowbirdmedia.net. But if they want to reach me directly there, and my office number, can I give a phone number? They of course. Yeah, that's up yeah. to you. <laughs> they could call me at 323-651-1666. And I'm happy to talk to anybody, any of your listeners, about here. Are, here's where I am in my career. Uh, what do I do to get to the next level? You know, cool. how do Beautiful. I get started? How do I get work? All that kind of good stuff. That's that's extremely generous of you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. And we'll, we'll post obviously Rick's uh, links on our website as well. So. Um, Rick, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. it was, uh, Thanks for having to line me. up the schedules, but we're, I'm so happy that we got to have this interview. So thank you so much. Line. Gentlemen, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Okay, good luck, everybody. I'll, uh, I'd like to say may the wind be at your back and may the mic be at your front. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> awesome. All right, guys, welcome back. So uh, ho- hope you enjoyed uh, part two of our interview with Rick Zeef. We didn't really get a chance to talk about this uh, in the last episode because we said we wanted to table it for you know after part two. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, what are your reactions? Well, the big nugget I took away from this was that uh, when he said, <clears throat> I think he said this in part one actually, but he said, um, you know, everybody says voiceover is so hard to, to get into and so hard to, to you know, start a career in until you do. <laughs> 
And he said, it's just like acting. It's just like anything else. Like it's, yeah, it's really hard to kind of get, start working, but once you start getting those first few gigs and that just takes a lot of persistence, once you start booking it, then you start working more. And I, I just thought like, wow, that's such a simple but profound thing. It's like, yeah, it's hard, but everything's hard. Yeah. You know? Well, <laughs> but once it, you get started, it becomes easier. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Yeah. Everybody That's, would be working as a voiceover actor, so you got to just be persistent. Cool. So, so if uh, you have any questions for, for Rick, you know, he threw his, uh, his email out there, and um, you can get in touch with us, and we can forward things on to him, but uh, very open to to answering questions i think he's out of town right now but he, he'll be back in uh, in like a week and uh you know fire fire away guys let us know uh, uh you know what 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 you have for him and, and maybe we'll have him back on the podcast even cool so picks of the week what do you got so uh i have two um because they're both websites and they're both the idea behind them is very simple but i picked them up at the uh, tcg conference the panel that i went to which is about uh, audience engagement and this actually has nothing to do with audience engagement so i don't know why they were talking about it in this panel but um it, i thought it'd be great because we've been talking about we've been talking a lot about writing on the podcast and i thought you know especially you trev would be interested in 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 these uh, two tools but they're tools basically for people who are interested in writing new plays um which is kind of an ironic topic after we talked about the death of theater for so long earlier in the podcast <laughs> yeah jesus cristo so there are these two websites one is called newplaymap.org and the other one is um a live stream channel livestream.com slash new play um and that live stream channel is the, the moniker for that live stream channel is called new play tv and both of those both of these are resources for people looking for or writing new plays and so newplaymap.org is very cool. It shows you a map of the United States. Um, it's only in the U.S. right now. Maybe they'll expand it to the world um, at a later date. But basically it shows you can track uh, a production from its inception or from its first reading, rather, all the way through to any productions that are going on now. So one production that Trevor and I are very familiar with is Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo because they did it at the Kirk Douglas Theater. Uh, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer. Um, it had its first read um at uh, the playwriters foundation and then it's on broadway right now starring robin williams so yeah. it's gone through this really amazing trajectory uh all these different you know paths uh since i think 2006 and so it's just really incredible to be able to follow that path um and also see all of the associated uh, theaters, theater companies, or organizations that had a hand in bringing that to to light. And if you have a play that's new and you want to sort of get it on the map, <laughs> literally, you can submit it to the website. So I thought that was very cool. Oh, is there a part of the website where you can actually submit your play? <clears throat> yeah. yeah or you, submit its production history, rather. Yeah. yeah. You, uh, th- I think there's like an email that you send like the information to, and then they get you get in touch with them, and then they basically have a conversation with you cool. via email. Um, I th- and I think they do that to sort of vet things mm-hmm. so that like, you know, if I read a play called My Dog Steve and it's just like me in a dog suit sitting on my front porch, it doesn't end up on their, on right, their website. Right, right. You know? So they have a, a vetting process and I think it's just like them in conversation with you via email. So this isn't really a publicity <laughs> tool, is it? I mean, I guess it could be. I mean, publicity tool, you're not going to like sell tickets to your show with it, but you might interest a producer. Okay, so you it's, know, it's, it's just another tool to have to kind of show how 
the history of your production. Yeah, yeah. But also, if you are, if anybody out there happens to be interested in a particular play and that you think that cool. it might be on the map, they can go and check it out. It's like an interactive form of the, the Wikipedia for that production, basically. Oh, yeah, almost. That's, that's yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, the history of it. Cool. And the new play TV is a... It's funny because on on their website they have like a quote I can't remember exactly what it says but it's something like the C-span of new play production or something (laughs) because (laughs) basically it's only live streams and what they do is they hold events all over the country and um, the events have to do with plays that are in the middle of being developed They're, they're they're plays that are currently being developed so. Like, if you went to the website right now, I mean, I don't know when you're listening to this, but at the time of this recording, there's nothing going on on the website. But there's a list of upcoming events. So if you're sitting at your computer or, uh, um, you know, your mobile device at the time of this event, you can watch it happen. So watch, watch an actual performance of the play? It might be a performance. It might be a reading. It might be the writer working with the actors. It might be the writer working with the producers. It might be, um, you know, uh, a live Twitter event where they have a hashtag. It's like hashtag new play TV. And you can just hashtag that and send in a question. And the writer or producer or whoever that's sitting there on the other side of the camera will answer your question. There's all kinds of different, you know, events that go on. But I thought, you know, it's sort of like another little, like, writer's workshop, but it's existing online. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's very cool. So if you're if, if you're an inspiring writer out there that listens to our podcast, you know, I thought, um, you know, that... that uh, might be useful to you and I, I, they they were i'm not really in, into um writing at the moment i think it's something that i might get into uh, uh a little bit later i know trev has been doing it a lot lately but i i was fascinated by these two uh tools when i heard about them and that's from the point of view of somebody who's not a writer so i can't imagine hmm. somebody who is a writer not being fascinated by them does that right. make sense yeah yeah, yeah. um i just yeah. thought they were cool so anyway it is then. cool to kind of quickly go back to what we were talking about before i think part of the problem that theater is not so widely accepted aside from the kind of inconsistency factor you know that we talked about yeah it's, and mostly among 99 seat theater you know you're not gonna you're usually not gonna find an awful play at uh, a place like center theater group you know, or passive. Well, the production playoffs. values are going to be good, but you may not agree with the. You may not think the play <laughs> right, itself right. is good. But, but the production values—that's that's a big part of it. Um, Definitely. But I think that part of it is that you know that theater just has for some time now. I think been suffering from a lack of cool in this YouTube, you know, TV on demand world. You know, like yeah. But it sounds like people are starting to catch on to that a little bit. Well, there was a lot of talk about that at TCG. I didn't go to all the panels. I only went to one, actually. But and, but I got to check out like the, 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 the area where people sort of convened in the lobby of the Biltmore. And <clears throat> there's a lot of information there. And I grabbed a program and looked at some of the panels. And a lot of the panels had to do with just that, with exactly that. There was a panel on you know, uh, social networking. There's this panel I went to on audience engagement. There was a panel that was run literally by a bunch of teenagers from various theater companies who came together to talk about how to engage teens in theater, basically get a younger generation interested in the theater. The, the, the problem is that some of the people who are running like the social networking panels, I heard from attendees, were 
people from the baby boomer generation going, yeah, you gotta, you gotta reach the kids on the Twitters and 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 you know talk to them on the Facebooks and <laughs> like people who had like no concept of the, of what this tool is and what it means and how it can actually you know interact with you know with theater. I'm reminded of um, my friend Jason Farman who was who. Um, Went to UCLA and and um, eventually got his PhD in in theater, and his whole interest was in the 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 combination of of technology and theater and how technology informs theater, and that guy is so brilliant and the stuff that he talks about and the stuff that he puts forth is I think what what we are really going to start seeing in the future of theater. If anybody's familiar with like the Wooster Group, for instance, the stuff that they use in their productions, just look them up, Google it, Wooster Group. This, the kind of technology that they integrate into their production, that may be what we start to see more and more of uh, um, in the future. They've, they've live-streamed plays before and had interactive plays where, like, the audience sort of – it's like a choose-your-own-adventure where the audience mm-hmm. votes, you know, using various methods on their website to kind of, like, point the play in a certain path. That may be where we see, you know, plays – plays headed and that may be speaking to what you were saying about the the quote-unquote cool factor of plays but not to like you know you can't attach i read this awesome article on marketing the other day and there was this guy who said um you you if you use twitter and your customers are not on twitter you're an idiot (laughs) <laughs> and that's like it's, wow it took me a minute to figure out what that was it's what so, you were saying but it's that's so, so bril- true it's so true it's so brilliant people yeah. you can't just you can't just throw hashtags and links and shit up on a twitter feed and expect to like sell tickets to a play or right. what or whatever it is that you're shoveling you know like you have to go to people wherever they are and and speak to them in the way that they want to be spoken to yeah you know what i mean so th- the fact that like there's also this marketer's rant from from TCG that's going around the internet. We can post it on our website. But it's this woman who like quote unquote interrupted a couple of sessions with like by tweeting about them, tweeting at the panelists. And she said the problem with this whole discussion is the fact that if if this if this conference or these panels at this conference were really about social networking, my tweets would not be interrupting the session. They would be the session. Hmm. You know what mm. I mean, and that's what I think that like people. I think what's happening is that that we that that older generation you were saying is still kind of in charge, and they're like they're like playing at social networking mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to just integrating it. Right, right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm sorry, I just went off on like this total rant, but no, it's cool. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there there's going to be there needs to be a lot more integration with technology, not only in the productions but also as supporting material for the productions. I think if you're going to do a play, if you have the resources, you need to put out a couple of well-produced webisodes to kind of act as promotional material. The same way that a musician who puts out a CD goes and then tours. You know what I mean? Except it's kind of reversed with theater. Sure, yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's funny. I, I, I never that, thought of that before. I think that you've got you've to create content on a variety of levels to support your theatrical production. That's what I think. That's where I feel like it's going. That, like, if I, if I was... If I heard awesome things about a play and then saw, like, five or six, two or three minute webisodes that were... Maybe they were a separate thing from the play, or maybe they were actual scenes from the play, but they were shot that way. And I could get a taste of what it is, the actors I'm going to see, the story I'm going to get, the quality of the of the work. Mm-hmm. I'd be way more inclined to leave my house and pay $25 for a ticket yeah. to see it if I got a taste of that. Because then I would feel a connection, and I'd, I'd almost want to go see these actors live for the 
the pseudo celebrity factor, you know, <laughs> if I really liked it, you know what I mean? I think that would, that would go a long way. It's interesting because what you're doing by, by speaking that way is you're playing into the, the, the emerging culture. What do you mean? The, the, the sort of like celebrity culture, the, the sort of like migration away from theater and towards right, web right. content and stuff like that. Like you're playing into that by saying like, Oh, I would go to see them because now they're like celebrities because I saw them on my computer yeah, screen. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you've really got to in- engage people that way. You can't just, like you said, play at them. Yeah. You've got to integrate the audience. Right. And well, so and that's a way to do that. It has a lot that. to do with transparency too. If you can sort of open yourself up and make yourself transparent as a company, like we're talking a lot about entrepreneurship and marketing right now, but mm-hmm. it's good. It's all good stuff. If you can sort of open yourself up, like that's going to people are, it speaks to people. If you, if transparency is huge, that's why we try to do it on the podcast. Yeah. That's what never that's eat alone a, is all about. And the thank you economy and, yeah, and all exactly. those books. It's not a mistake. Yeah. It's yeah. not a mistake. Um, wow. Do you have a pick of the week? Or I do. We just let me completely let me, bulldoze over. <laughs> let me squeeze it in here real fast. My pick of the week is a book called, uh, the brain that changes itself. And this is a book that gives you a scientific picture of how and why your noodle bakes. <laughs> yes! <laughs> this book is epic. I'm not done it. I almost didn't want to do it as my pick of the week because I, I really just started it. I'm only 50 pages into it. Um, and it's probably, it's like a 350-page book. Um, but is it it's, already baking your noodle? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's it's about how, it's about, it's it's a... I don't know how to put it. For a long time, scientists thought that, you know, certain parts of our brain corresponded to certain functions in our body. And that if that part of your brain was damaged, let's see the part of your brain that's responsible for speech. If that part of your brain is damaged, then you're fucked. Pardon my French, but you won't be able to ever speak again. But what they're finding now is that you can reprogram your brain through rehab and training and things like that to work around the damaged areas and function completely normally again based on this uh, this this concept that the, the author calls neuroplasticity. So it's the idea that your brain is much more flexible. And he, he says that we've looked at our brains for so long as these machines. You know, you damage a part of the machine, it's broken. you got to fix it, you know. But he says, no, they actually are not. They're, they're t- kind of machine-like, but machines don't grow and adapt, and brains do. And he talks about a lot of the... At least not yet. Yeah, right, right, not yet. Dun, 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 I watched dun, dun. That should have been my dun, pick. Dun, this should have been my pick dun, dun, of the week. Dun, dun, dun. I watched a documentary called Transcendent Man, which was all about the singularity that's coming and, and how we're all going to be robots within 20 years because we're going to have so many nanobots in our bodies repairing our cells, fighting off disease that we're, you're just not going to be able to tell human from machine anymore. That should have been my pick of the week, but it wasn't. It was this book. Um, <laughs> and this book is just... Trevor is a Cylon, everyone. <laughs> This book is uh, is incredible. I'll quick, give a quick story about that from the first chapter. A woman who um, lost her sense of balance. Um, long long story that the author goes into, but she lost her sense of balance. So everywhere she went, she felt like she was falling. She could not stand up. Even when she fell to the ground, she felt like she was still falling. They devi- they invented this this device. It's a helmet she put on her head with this little microchip she would put on her tongue. And the microchip would send electric signals, kind of like uh, it would feel like carbonated soda, like in your mouth, but it would send electric signals to her tongue based on the accelerometer's position in the helmet in her head. So she tilted her head to the left, little electrical charges would be sent to her tongue, and her brain adapted immediately. So even though she had no sense of balance in her inner ear, her tongue took these signals and like rewired that part of her brain. So when she took the helmet off, they were this was the cool part. When they took the helmet off, 
a residual effect of this balancing stayed with her for like 20% of the time. So if she wore it for a minute, for like 15 seconds after that, she was able to still walk around normally before she remembered basically that she didn't have a sense of balance. But the more she wore the helmet, the longer the residual effect would be after she took it off. And after a certain point, she just didn't need the helmet anymore because her brain had learned somehow to rewire itself, even though she physically has no sense of balance. And it talks about what that is. It's these ear canals with little hairs and these fluids that tell you how to balance, but she didn't have that, but she was able to walk around like a normal person because her brain had reprogrammed itself based on the trainings from this machine. It's incredible. That's just the first chapter. Mind uh, you. <laughs> so, I, th- um, I definitely think one part of my brain just melted. Yeah, no, if you want your noodle baked, check it out. It's called the brain that changes itself by Norman Doidge. I think that's how you say his name. Maybe the I is silent. Dodge. Um, we'll put a link to it on the website. Oh my gosh. My yeah. brain is melting. Yeah. Well, it's cool because it kind of, the book kind of straddles the line between self-help and neuroscience. So it's really interesting the implications that it has. As you read it, you're like, hey, this is why affirmations work. And this is why a vision board is so crucial. And this is why this and this and this and this. <laughs> All this, this is why we talked about on the podcast yeah, before. It's so, it's so cool. So check it out. The brain that changes itself. Epic episode, man. we got to wrap this up. Do it. Um, For episode 56. Wow. Uh, Thank you guys for listening to all this. There's a lot of different ways that you can support the podcast. First and foremost, if you like what you hear, you can tell your friends. Get the word out and tell them about Inside Acting um, and the guests that we have on. And um, let us know if there's something we could be doing better or uh, less of or whatever. Um, You can give us a review on iTunes if you'd like. You can search for us, and you can also find us on uh, Actor Rated. Just do a search for Inside Acting. Leave a review in those two places. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, twitter.com slash insideacting, or our individual accounts. I'm at twitter.com slash digitalactor. And I'm twitter.com slash Trevor Algott. And the Facebook URL for easy bookmarking is facebook.com slash insideacting. You can also uh, give us a call at uh, 213-2-ACTORS. That's 213-222-8677. And you can uh, shoot us an email at insideactingpodcast at gmail.com. And last but certainly not least, you can check out the website, and that's where you can send your friends for all this information. And on the website, you can leave a comment, and you can also leave a donation. Over on the right-hand side, we've got these little donate buttons allow you to leave one lump sum donation or uh, sign up for a subscription uh, for $3, 5 10 or $20 a month. And, you know, every dollar goes back into making a better podcast for you guys. Um, we don't spend a time of that on ourselves. Um, it's all going back into the podcast. And um, we've got some really exciting stuff on the horizon. We're uh, very excited. We've been having production meetings for Ligature. And so excited to kind of get this stuff off the ground. And, uh, and you can help. In addition to that, this will be the very last recording um, before... The Kickstarter campaign for Gospel closes. Um, we only mention it one other time because we don't really like to use Inside Acting as a platform for, um, you know, plugging um, uh, things that aren't Inside Acting, especially when it comes to getting money. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. we like talking about you know when we're doing when we're in a show because that's what we're up to, but um, uh, we don't like necessarily. Uh, plugging stuff that requires that you spend money unless it's been vetted by us or whatever. You understand. We're trying to maintain the integrity of the podcast, basically. Um, but we've got one uh, week or two, sorry, two weeks left 
of the Kickstarter campaign for Gospel According to First Squad. Um, you can check out the link on our website and uh, and kick us a few bucks to help um, make that production as awesome possum as possible. <laughs> and it only takes one dollar to start uh, to support, and uh, that one dollar gets you, um, I think, like twenty five percent off your tickets or something like that. So yeah, there's um, a, a whole list of uh, really awesome incentives, including watching us do massive amounts of push-ups that's right if you want and you have the resources you can watch us do 2500 (laughs) push-ups one push-up for every dollar that's right um so thank you guys so much for listening thank you for your support um check out the first squad kickstarter page and i think that does it for episode 56 i'm trevor elgott and i'm aj meyer we'll see you next week in the meantime viva el teatro